0: I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Why is Israel in the news so often? What is it about a country of 9 million people that captivates so much attention? And why does it seem to us that the coverage feels so slanted towards the Palestinian narrative? Is it that we Jews are just way too sensitive? Or... Is there a certain bias of reporters when it comes to Israel? Joining me today to help us investigate this phenomenon is Canadian Israeli journalist and author Mati Friedman. His work as a reporter has taken him from Israel to Lebanon, Morocco, Moscow, the Caucasus, and Washington, D.C. A former Associated Press Jerusalem correspondent and an essayist for the New York Times opinion section. He currently writes a monthly feature for Tablet magazine. He is also the author of four compelling, and award-winning books. Mati, welcome to In These Times.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Rabbi Hirsch.
0: Before I get to the matter of your outstanding international expertise with respect to how Israel is covered in the media, I wonder if you could just give us a bit of background what brought you to Israel.
1: Sure, I grew up in Toronto and decided after high school that I would spend a year working on a kibbutz. I didn't know a lot about Israel, but I had read probably too much old Zionist ideology, so I'd read A.D. Gordon and all the great thinkers of labor Zionism, and I decided that I would uh, take a year and and milk cows and ended up on a small religious kibbutz called Maale Gilboa, which at the time was had fewer than 30 families and I had an incredible year. I just loved every minute of it. And it was pretty clear to me after arriving on this mountain, Mount Gilboa, which is famous, of course, for being the scene of the death of King Saul in the book of Samuel. The kibbutz is right there. And it was clear to me after a few weeks that I was going to stay. So I did. And I've been here ever since. It's been 27 years. It feels permanent. About two years after I came, my parents moved. So my whole family... immediate families here in Israel, and we have been ever since, so my entire adult life has been spent here in Israel for a few years on that same kibbutz, and for the past 20-odd years in Jerusalem.
0: I can identify with that. I uh, came to Israel when I was a teenager, too. I was 14 years old. I didn't come alone. I came with my family. I was younger than you, so it didn't take all that much time to get adjusted. But it must have been difficult for you to get adjusted as a 17-year-old. You were then drafted into the army, which some of the experiences, you wrote an outstanding award-winning book. So just tell us a bit about, for those who might be thinking about making Aliyah to Israel, how was it? Are you adjusted now?
1: Or are you still trying to adjust to Israeli society? I'm definitely surprised by Israeli society a few times a day, even though I've been here for 27 years and I've been working here as a journalist for most of that time. But the place is very dynamic and quite unexpected much of the time. So I'm not sure you can ever completely assimilate (laughs) into this society, possibly even if you're born into it. But I feel at home here. I was young enough and flexible enough that I could really join the stream of Israeli society. The kids on the kibbutz at the time were all finishing high school and heading into the army. And I kind of joined them and did the same thing and picked up Hebrew very quickly because I had no friends on the kibbutz and no one would speak to me in English. So I had to learn very, very fast. I wasn't part of any program. There were no other English speakers or English speaking kids my age around. So I was kind of thrown into Israeli society first on this kind of scrappy kibbutz in rural Israel and then not too long afterward in the army where of course I had to sink or swim. And that was a good experience. I think it was a good way of moving here. I don't think it's for everyone. (laughs) I wouldn't recommend that everyone try it. But for me, it was the right move at the right time. You're a very
0: prolific, very profound, penetrating uh, writer. You've written in so many of the major media outlets of the world, the most important media outlets, both secular as well as Jewish. And much of that has focused on Israel, but specifically how the media covers Israel. You've been a severe critic of some of the articles that appear, even in the major press, the AP, the New York Times. What do you think the uh, media gets wrong about Israel?
1: Rabbi Hirsch, I hope we have seven or eight hours to really get into this topic and give it the time that it deserves. I spent about six years working for the AP, the Associated Press. The Bureau in Jerusalem is a big one. At the time, it was the AP's biggest international bureau. And I worked there from the summer of 2006 to the very end of 2011, and came in quite naive and quite kind of upbeat about what international press coverage was. I'd seen all the president's men, and I had a kind of innocent idea of what American journalism was, and didn't expect to have any problems, especially being an Israeli of left, center-left political leanings. And I left very cynical about the way the whole thing works, having discovered that many journalists were in fact activists and were more interested in political outcomes than in explanation. The news story here, and I think this is true of other countries, but the one I saw was here in Israel, so I'll speak about that one, has very little to do with what's actually going on. It's much more of a fantasy generated by Western reporters for Western readers in an attempt to reflect Western concerns. So if you come in, with the AP story or the New York Times story or CNN or BBC or you come in with that international news story and you land in the actual country of Israel and try to figure out what's going on, that will be impossible. The news story is useless as a map to the actual events that are taking place. It's a different kind of story. It's a morality story that's aimed at Western readers, and it doesn't require any expertise to write it, which is why so many of the correspondents here don't speak any of the relevant languages. It's generated by considerations that are largely ideological and not journalistic. And this all became clear to me over my time at the AP. It's not only true of the AP, of course, they were just unlucky enough to hire me. It's true across the board of what we once would have called the mainstream Press. I'm not sure if that term has much meaning anymore, but it did at the time. And by the end of 2011, it was clear to me that if I wanted to write the stories about Israel that I wanted to write, it would have to be done somewhere else and it would have to be done independently. There was almost no connection between the story I was writing for the AP and the country that I was seeing outside my window. That dissonance was just too much for me to cope with after a while. And I struck out on my own. And I'm glad I did, but I haven't been happy to see the decline of the news industry and the kind of descent of so many journalists into activism and the broader collapse of what used to be an attempt by experts to explain events on planet Earth, and there are still islands of uh, quality journalism, but much of that enterprise has become a form of political activism, whether you're consuming media on the left or on the right.
0: Let me press you on that. We're in the heart of New York City. I read the New York Times every day. I'm aware of some of its flaws, but I still consider it a great newspaper and, frankly, necessary reading for anybody who wants to know what's happening in the world, and especially for leaders who are involved in shaping public opinion. And, you know, the sense that we have, and I suppose it might be an outdated sense now in particular based on what you're uh, describing, but the sense that we have is there is objectivity there, that there is a section devoted to opinion, but that uh, reporting the news is objective and it simply uh, relates uh, the facts
1: that are observed. So tell us why we're wrong about that. <laughs> well, I wish you were right. First of all, of course, I would love to live in a world where I can open the New York Times and believe everything that's written in there, as I once did, of course. And I dreamed as a as a kid that one day I could write for the New York Times. And, and I did. I spent a few years writing for the op-ed section. And there's still a lot that's good in in the newspaper, but speaking now not specifically about the New York Times, but generally about news coverage, my experience has been that there is no difference between opinion writing and news writing, and that most news writing has become a kind of passive aggressive opinion writing. So if in an opinion piece, you're allowed to say, I think that, you know, that's classic op-ed type writing. In a news piece, you would say, experts believe that But it means exactly the same thing. And a lot of the so-called journalism you're going to see is, in fact, a kind of very thinly laundered political activism where the events being covered have been selected for political effect and are being portrayed in order to lead you to the correct political conclusions, which is not how I understand journalism. And one reason that people are having such a hard time understanding anything that's going on in the world, not just Israel, is because of that, because so much journalism is no longer explanatory, but is explicitly activist. So if you're, you know, someone of left-leaning political sympathies, you might find the New York Times comforting, because the news coverage is tailored to your worldview, and it's designed to reassure you that your political opinions are correct. And the same thing is true of outlets on the right, but there are a few places left in the middle who are trying to explain a complicated world to people and help them make the right decisions about who to vote for, what policies to pursue. I shudder to think that people making policy are reading mainstream newspapers and believing what they read. Because if you tailor policy, you know, we can talk about Israel specifically, if you tailor your Israel policy to the story that you're reading in the New York Times, those policies are going to be very wrong. And I think one reason that we've seen such unsuccessful U.S. policy over the past 20 years or so, is because many policymakers have mistaken what is essentially a political fantasy for an accurate depiction of of events.
0: Your point is generally about journalism, right? You can point to other places in the world that are being covered by, say, North American outlets, and they bring the same biases. It's not that Israel is unique in the biases that journalists bring to covering the country. Is that Right.
1: I think Israel is a unique case because of the scale of coverage and because of the kind of emotion that it elicits in the West. You just can't generate that kind of outrage with a story about Turkey and the Kurds or about Congo. The Israel story is always covered because it's not a classic news story and it allows Western reporters and activists and the whole class that's affiliated with the press to project their own preoccupations onto Israel and then use Israel as a symbol of what they see as wrong in the world. Colonialism, militarism, nationalism, racism, those are the the problems that preoccupy liberal people of whom I am one. And Israel appears in that context because it's a story that's meant to allow people in the West to process their own complicated problems about themselves. But it's certainly true. So there are unique factors in play in the Israel story as there are unique factors in play in every story told about Jews in Western civilization over the past 2000 years or so. But Western reporters do something similar in almost any story that they cover. Very few reporters actually speak the language of the places that they cover. Very few reporters have a background in the very complicated foreign countries where they're operating. And what they tend to do is create a highly simplified narrative that speaks to themselves and to their readers. And that narrative might have something to do with what's going on but i think more often it it doesn't and a good example for americans is the iraq story right before the invasion of iraq americans become convinced that iraq could potentially become a democracy and that the barrier between iraq and a democracy is this terrible regime led by saddam hussein and the reporting seems to support this and the reporters are generally talking to people from the state department and the military and a thought loop is created where Americans convince themselves that their own perceptions are true and very few reporters speak Arabic, very few reporters are in Iraq, very few reporters know Iraq, and America kind of saunters into Iraq, knocks out the regime and is flabbergasted when the entire place collapses and it ultimately results in the death of at least 300,000 Iraqis and about 4,500 American troops. So you can pay a high price for misunderstandings like this and that's one reason that it's very important that reporters not get mixed up in political activism.
0: So tell us specifically, with respect to correspondents that cover Israel, what are their ideological considerations as opposed to the objective journalistic considerations that many of us, when we read them, think are motivating them? When they come to Israel, what do they want to prove? What is their ideology?
1: I think more than anything else, the desire is for a story that speaks to the concerns of their readers, And the concerns of their readers in New York or Seattle or London or Paris are not necessarily going to be connected at all to the events in the Middle East. For Americans, the big story in America, the demon that stalks America is race. That's the problem that preoccupies Americans. And I understand why that is so. And The story you're gonna get from Israel, increasingly more than it was when I was in the press, is a highly racialized story where Israeli Jews are used as a stand-in for white Americans, and Palestinians are portrayed as a version of African-Americans. And you you can really see this being stated explicitly. Members of Congress have made that connection explicit by saying things like what they're doing to us in Ferguson is what they're doing to us in Palestine. There's a, a real attempt on the left to draw a line between America's problems and Israel's problems. And I'm not necessarily saying that Israel's problems are better, but they're certainly unconnected to American problems. Jews in Israel, have nothing to do with white Americans. (laughs) The Jewish story in Europe is really not the story of white America and the story of the Palestinians and of Muslims in the Middle East is not at all the story of African Americans. But reporters have a tendency to write what they know, to write a story that sounds good to them. And that's even more the case if you can't speak the language and are incapable of communicating with the people in the country and haven't been there for very long, right? Correspondents come in within a week, they're expected to be experts. You can keep that going for the two year term of a foreign correspondent before you move on to uh, misunderstanding some other place. That's part of what's going on. And that's not necessarily an ideological bias. That's a bias toward simplicity, toward narrative. So that's part of what's going on. But I think there's no way around acknowledging that the people who are likely to work in the press these days are affiliated with the ideological left. And I think that's more and more true as time goes on. It's the same kind of people that you'd meet. In you know, working for big NGOs like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and people you'd meet in university departments, probably coming out of the world of the left with a set of ideological principles about the way politics should work, about the way gender is, about the desirable outcomes in societies. And by the way, I share a lot of those Of those views. And I'm actually embarrassed to say that I think that if I weren't so out of step on Israel, I might not have noticed that something was wrong because the ideology around Israel was so distant from my own understanding of Israel. I couldn't really ignore it. And we've seen it become much more extreme, of course, since my time in the press. I left more than 10 years ago at this point. And we've seen Israel really become a symbol of evil for many people on the left. And if this was once on the very fringes of the left, it's now deep in the mainstream press. It's often very difficult for people in America to see the ways that the story is being warped, just to see the political activism that's changed Israel's story. It's much easier for me to see here. I just look out my window and I can see the country and try to get a handle on it. But of course, it's much harder for people condemned To live in New York and uh, condemn to trying to understand Israel through the New York Times or through any other American paper, that effort is not going to be successful.
0: It's a big challenge. I can tell you it's a big challenge for us because we try and encourage our people to have the deepest possible intellectual and emotional relationship with Israel. And if (laughs) the New York Times is kind of their Torah, their Bible, we're already pushing against the uh, tide. When you say uh, most of the uh, correspondents have an ideology that is associated now with the left, that tends to be antagonistic towards what Israel represents and the day-to-day in Israel. Do you include in that Jewish correspondence? I do know that major media outlets do try, or I don't think it's coincidental, that they send many Jewish correspondents to cover Israel, particularly perhaps because they feel that they have a greater access into what israel represents than somebody who has never been part of the jewish or israel experience what happens with jewish correspondents do you find that they write and respond similarly to their non-jewish colleagues
1: it's a complicated question of course there are many contradictory examples but there is this idea that that jewish reporters might be able to understand israel better when in my opinion it's almost always the other way around That if you come into israel with a blank slate, if you're just picked out of you know rural Wisconsin and thrown into Israel, you're going to have a much easier time understanding it than if you come with day school education and summer camp. I mean, if you come in with what is, let's face it, a fictional representation of Israel, you're going to be confused. In my opinion, what happens to a lot of Jewish correspondents is that they feel the need to prove that they haven't been infected with tribal sympathies. As a Jewish correspondent, and of course I was one, you make sure that no one can accuse you of undue sympathy to Israel. And often it's the Jewish correspondents who are bending over or backward to make sure that their coverage of Israel is as hostile as possible. My assumption while working at the AP and much of my coverage was, was critical coverage that I'm proud of for the most part, by the way, my assumption was that I was being critical of Israel and my Palestinian colleagues were doing the same thing on the Palestinian side of the coverage. And largely that wasn't true. There was this kind of intense, very harsh, very moralistic critique of Israel and nothing similar on any other side of the story. So the presence of so many Jewish writers and editors in the story actually, I think, is a an element that contributes to the irrationality of the story. Also, much of the time, or in many cases, Jewish people think Israel is very important. And they might not be able to say that explicitly, or they might not even know they think that, but you just grow up thinking this country is very, very important. And you might not question that. Israel is one one-hundredth of one percent of the world's surface. As a percentage of the land mass of the Arab world, it's 0.2 percent. That's one-fifth of one percent. And it's much better coming in here to have a an idea of the insignificance of the country or or even better, no idea about the country at all than it is to come in with these very heavy, irrationally positive or irrationally negative ideas about Israel that many American Jews seem to have.
0: You wrote this amazing article in Tablet magazine a while ago. And in it, you said, what's important in the Israeli-Palestinian story is Israel, not the Palestinians. Could you expand on that? You mentioned that there's almost no investigation of and no effort to understand Palestinian society. It's almost like there's some kind of foil for the drama taking place where Israel is the central actor.
1: Yes. I mean, getting back to your earlier point for a moment, I think that the idea that this hostility to Israel is somehow liberal or progressive is an inversion of liberalism. There's nothing progressive about thinking that the Jewish state is the one state on earth that shouldn't exist. Of course, that's an expression of the most regressive kind of politics. You know, that's like the politics of the sewers of Western civilization. And somehow it's surged from the sewers into the street. And I don't see the ground. I'll never say, oh, you know, yes, I guess I'll abandon the left and, you know, admit that I've always been a closet conservative. Israel is a liberal cause. Israel is a much more progressive country than the United States. In most ways, if you take our entire political system, including the Likud and including Benjamin Netanyahu, and transport them to the United States, which, by the way, I sometimes wish would happen, but if you transport them to the United States, they would be Democrats. right on all of the red flag issues that Americans vote on, Israelis including the Israeli writer in the Democratic Party. So the idea that Israel is somehow a conservative cause is part of that ideological fantasy that's been constructed around Israel. Part of the way the mechanism works is what you mentioned in the second part of the question which is this complete lack of interest in any actor in the story who isn't Israeli. And it's not just the Palestinians there's there's almost no interest in who the Palestinians are and what makes them tick. Political views are ascribed to Palestinians in news coverage, which have almost nothing to do with what's actually going on. For example, in the boilerplate copy in an AP story, I must have written this hundreds of times, it says, the Palestinians desire a state alongside Israel in the West Bank in Gaza with its capital in East Jerusalem. Man, I must have written that hundreds of times. It's one of those basic sentences in an AP story that you didn't have to cite. You didn't need to back it up. That was just a, a statement of truth. Of course, the Palestinian national movement's goal, and they're quite open about it most of the time, is to replace Israel with an Arab state. That's the fact at the base of the conflict. And by the way, I'm not saying that's necessarily illegitimate. If I were on their side, maybe that's what I'd want. And the world is a rough place and you're allowed to want whatever you want. But journalists are not allowed to lie about the desires of one side in order to make the other side look bad. And that's what's happened. People who are looking at the conflict just simply can't understand what Israel's problem is because the desires of Israel's opponents have been misrepresented to seem rational, and thus Israel's opposition to those goals seems irrational. So that's part of the way the story is set up. But in a broader sense, the Palestinians are beside the point, because this is a Middle Eastern conflict. And presenting it as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict is part of the fictionalization of the story. Most of Israel's wars have not been fought against Palestinians. Israel's fought wars, unfortunately, against Jordanians and Syrians and Iraqis and Lebanese and Israel's most important enemy at the moment is Iran, of course, the regime in Iran, not the people in Iran, but the regime and, and the Iranians aren't Palestinian. Every good story needs a princess and a dragon. And that's what makes a good bedtime story. And that's the reason that the Russia-Ukraine story is so powerful. So a story has been created in Israel that crops out almost all of the necessary regional context in pursuit of a princess dragon dynamic. So it's true that the Palestinians are ignored, and that's very unfortunate. And of course, it completely skews the coverage. But in a broader sense, what's important is the exclusion of all regional contexts that would make Israel's behavior comprehensible. If you see this conflict as Israelis do, then you understand that there are 300 million people in the Arab world. And in one corner of that part of the world, there are 6 million Jews who are Israelis. And if you zoom out further, you'll see that there are about 1.5 billion Muslims, maybe two billion, depending on who you ask. And in one part of that, one little corner of that swath of the globe, you have six million Jews who are equivalent to about a third of the population of Cairo, just Cairo. So we don't feel like an empowered majority, which is the way we're portrayed in the Israel Palestinian framing of the story. We feel like an embattled minority. Of course, the Palestinians also feel like an embattled minority. And one of the ironies, I guess, or tragedies in this story is that that's also true, Right. Both Israelis and Palestinians can legitimately see themselves as an embattled minority. And that's why there's justice on more than one side of this story. And that's why reporting it requires knowledge and empathy and not a political axe to grind. It seems to us
0: that there's almost a zealotry, a kind of a, a relish to uncover and expose moral flaws. In Israeli society and then present them in what seems like objective coverage of Israel. Do you think that is part of the general left understanding of the world at this point in time, or do you detect an element of anti Jewish sentiment, even anti Semitism.
1: I try to avoid the term anti Semitism largely because I think it ends any conversation. No one thinks that they're an anti Semite. Some people seem to think that anti Semitism is kind of like COVID, meaning that you're either positive or negative for anti Semitism, that it's kind of a binary situation. When I think anyone who's studied Western civilization understands that these highly moralistic and very hostile stories about Jews are a staple of Western civilization for at least 2,000 years. There's a great book about it called Anti-Judaism by David Nirenberg from the University of Chicago. And he traces it through Western civilization. When people want to explain their problems to themselves, they will tell themselves a story about Jews embodying those problems. And the problems change. So the stories about Jews change. So if the problem is that people aren't Christian enough, then there'll be a story about Jews who reflect Values that are opposite to the values of Christianity. So we believe in charity. These people are greedy. We believe in the spirit. These people are too focused on the body. We believe in mercy. These people believe in law. Moving into modern times, you have communists explaining what they hate about the world by telling stories about Jewish bankers. While at the same time, people who are worried about communism are telling themselves stories about Jewish Bolsheviks. And sometimes the Jews are, you know, universalists who and cosmopolitans who are eroding the body politic of the nations of Europe. And sometimes they're clannish tribalists, which is the opposite quality. And sometimes they're racially impure and sometimes they're religiously impure. And sometimes their nation state is the only one that's too bad to exist. So I think we're definitely in a continuum of storytelling. That's maybe the oldest form of storytelling in the West. That's either a crazy coincidence, right? It's a crazy coincidence that the story about evil that is the most powerful story on the left today is a story about Jews, right? That's either a crazy coincidence or it's part of a much longer narrative technique in Western society where you illustrate problems with Jews. This is definitely happening on the left, but it's not happening only on the left. If you look at the right, what people are preoccupied with on the hard right is globalization, the movement of money and people across borders, the erosion of national boundaries. So if you surf hard right websites, which no one should be doing, but if you do, you'll see that the word globalist is a euphemism for Jews. The idea of the Great Replacement Theory is quite widely held, or so it seems, on the right. That's the idea that, of course, immigration threatens the future of white America and the people engineering immigration are Jews. And that idea animated the shooter from Pittsburgh a few years ago, the guy who shot up the shul. On the right, too, people illustrate their problems with Jews. This form of storytelling has always been part of the West. It went into the basement for a few decades after the Second World War, at least in polite society, because it was clear to many people that things had gone a bit too far when almost the entire Jewish population of Europe was murdered. But a few generations have passed. Memories are short. And we have a few competing variants of the story that are very much part of public life in the West at the moment. And one of those stories is about an evil country called Israel.
0: I want to ask you about just to relate to two books that you wrote, two fabulous books. First, Pumpkin Flowers is an award-winning book about your time as an Israeli soldier in southern Lebanon. Could you uh, tell us what the book is about and explain to what the
1: central tension of the book was? So I moved to Israel as a 17-year-old and found myself fairly quickly in the army in an outpost inside South Lebanon. So I'd moved to Israel, but very quickly found myself in a completely different country. The army was engaged in those years. It was the late 1990s. They were engaged in a small-scale guerrilla war against Hezbollah, which is an Iranian proxy in South Lebanon. I found myself at an outpost called Outpost Pumpkin. All of the bases in Lebanon had these funny floral names. They were named after flowers and vegetables, and they sounded very bucolic. It's kind of, you know, a bed and breakfast type names, even though these were very grim places. And I had a, I guess my transformation into an Israeli happened in Lebanon, which is probably part of why it's, I'm sure it's a, there's a strange component of my Israeli identity there that I haven't completely unpacked, but I did learn about Israel when I was about five miles north of the border in Lebanon with about 60 or 70 other Israeli soldiers. And they taught me about Israel. I'd come with a lot of ideas about the country that had very little to do with what was actually going on. And I learned from them about the country. And I realized that I had moved to the Middle East basically without noticing. None of the stories about Israel that I read as a kid were about the Middle East. They were all very much about Europe and you know Herzl and socialism and pogroms and the Holocaust. And yet Israel's in the Middle East and I found myself involved in this strange little war against Shia Muslims. We were allied with Arabic-speaking Christians in South Lebanon. I had no idea as a 17-year-old that there were Arabic-speaking Christians. So what followed was a crash course in the complexities of Middle Eastern politics. And my life, or certainly my career since that moment, has been an attempt to figure out what happened, to figure out you know, what was so confusing, or what seemed so confusing from the firing slits of the outpost, which is the Middle East. Zionism maybe begins in Europe, but it lands like a meteor in the Middle East and has a series of unintended consequences that we're still dealing with today. And most of my writing, or almost all of my writing, is basically about that, trying to figure out what this country is, where it is, and what my place in it is.
0: Tell us about your latest book, Who By Fire? It's about Leonard Cohen. I think most people don't even know this. Leonard Cohen, during the Yom Kippur War, made a tour of the Sinai Desert to give concerts before uh, Israeli soldiers It Influenced his life and it obviously influenced the people who interacted with Leonard Cohen.
1: So it's very much during the yom kippur war Which is the darkest moment in israel's history since the founding of israel in 1948 the army's in disarray They've been caught off guard by surprise attacks on two fronts by egypt and syria and in the first week of the yom kippur war Things are going very badly ultimately 2600 israelis die in the yom kippur war in a country that was barely 3 million people So the war is a very traumatic moment for Israel. And in the Sinai desert, out of the dust of battle comes Leonard Cohen, this Canadian poet, this kind of Greenwich village figure on some kind of quest, some kind of Jewish quest, some kind of musical quest. And he gives what might be one of the greatest concert tours in rock and roll history, certainly one of the strangest concert tours this all happens at the Sinai front. So the book is about that. It's about what happens to Cohen, about how he ended up in Israel during the war, about the soldiers who meet Cohen, you know, in these absolutely bizarre and extreme circumstances along the Suez Canal. And it's about the confluence of events in October 1973 that produces a great moment in Israeli history, a great moment, I think, in Jewish history, a meeting of the diaspora in Israel at a moment of crisis, and also produces some great music. The war lives on between the lines of some of Cohen's songs. And of course, the war happens on on Yom Kippur, right, which is the most solemn day of the Jewish calendar. And at the height of the Yom Kippur service, we recite this prayer called Unetane Tokef, which portrays God as a judge sitting on a throne, deciding our fate for the coming year and deciding who will live and who will die. And if you're going to die, then how? And the prayer spells it out. Who by water, who by fire, who by sword, who by wild beast. There's a list of colorful ways that you might meet your demise in the coming year. So Israelis say that prayer in synagogue, and then a short time afterward, a siren goes off and the war starts. And 2,600 Israelis are sent off to die in ways that resemble the ways depicted in the prayer. So The observance of Yom Kippur and that prayer in particular are at the heart of the memory of the Yom Kippur War. And in a very interesting way, Cohen experiences the war with with the Israelis, comes back home and writes a song called Who By Fire, which is a very Leonard Cohen riff on this medieval prayer that we say on Yom Kippur. So something very potent happens. It's kind of a very deep Jewish Moment in October 1973 and that's what the book is about
0: and he came to Israel because he wanted to contribute Something to the
1: war effort. He was actually on the front during the fighting He was at the front during the fighting and he wasn't it wasn't a Bob Hope type tour It wasn't big bases in the rear. It wasn't organized by anyone He was just driving around the front in a jeep with a few other Israeli musicians, and he crosses the Suez Canal, a day or two behind the Israeli army when the great counterattack across the canal happens, which is the turning point of the war. We can place Cohen on the Egyptian side of the Suez Canal within a day or two of the crossing. So he's really at the front. What brings him to the war is complicated, and I get into it in the book. Part of it is this message from his Jewish soul that he has to be there, that if Israel's in crisis, he needs to be there since he's died, I think there's a thirst for
0: knowing about Leonard Cohen and recognizing his place in the panoply of important musicians, but not only musicians. As you said, he was a poet that put down poetry to musical form. Are you a Leonard Cohen fan? Is that what motivated you to write this?
1: Of course, I'm a Leonard Cohen fan. I'm a Canadian Jew, so we don't have a choice. We're not asked at birth. That's just kind of uh, part of the package. (laughs) I grew up, of course, with his songs on in the backgrounds. And he showed up in Israel in 2009, and Israelis went crazy. He gave a concert, and when the tickets went on sale, the phone lines crashed. And it was totally wild, and I couldn't understand why everyone was so excited to see Leonard Cohen, why Israelis loved him so much. And... Part of it is his music, of course, and the Jewish components of his music and the fact that he's a genius. But part of it turned out to be connected to this story about the Yom Kippur War. People remembered that at a moment of genuine crisis, Leonard Cohen came. He didn't have to come. And most Jewish artists, of course, didn't come. And he did. And not only did he come to the country, he went to the front. And the details were never clear, but people remembered that that had happened. And Israelis have always considered Leonard Cohen to be a kind of Israeli artist, They consider him to be one of us, and I can't really think of another Jewish artist who has that status.
0: I wanna thank you very much. Keep writing, it's so important, not only for Israel, but for uh, the world Jewish community and anybody who's interested in Israel affairs.
1: Thanks again for having me on the show.
0: We're privileged to have spent this time with one of the most important writers in the Jewish world today. Mati Friedman composes essays and opinion pieces for many of the most prominent media outlets, but not only that. He also writes beautiful books, books that prompt you not only to think, but also to feel, to feel deeply. Mati made many critical points about the media. He knows of what he speaks. He has been on the inside for decades. Given what he shared about the inability of any human being to be entirely objective, and given his emphasis that when it comes to Israel, hardly anyone is dispassionate, we should never again read news reports in quite the same way. But I'd like to focus on the last part of our conversation, his recently published book about Leonard Cohen. Listening to Mati brought back deep personal memories of that Yom Kippur war in October 1973. I just arrived in Israel three months earlier with my parents and three siblings. I was 14 years old and vividly remember returning from morning prayers on that Yom Kippur day at the Jerusalem campus of the Hebrew Union College, fasting and resting at home in preparation for the afternoon services. At 2 p.m., sirens blasted the silence, piercing our tranquility. No one really had any idea why sirens would shriek in the middle of Yom Kippur afternoon. Nothing moves in Israel on Yom Kippur. No cars, no public transportation. Everything is quiet and still. Another war six years after the Six-Day War was inconceivable. I remember an army jeep rolling up to our apartment building, and an Orthodox woman yelled at the IDF officer in the jeep from her balcony, What are you doing here? It's the middle of Yom Kippur. And I remember the officer yelling back, Lady, it's not Yom Kippur anymore. We are at war. Tell your husband to join the reservists now. I didn't go to school for a full month. Since most of the men were mobilized, they sent us, high school students, to staff supermarkets, bakeries, and other vital services. It's hard to describe the shock and trauma that the country endured. Within days, hundreds and eventually thousands of Israeli soldiers returned home dead and wounded. Dozens of funerals were conducted daily. The country was half of its current population. Everyone in Israel knew someone who was killed or wounded. No one escaped unscathed and unaffected. Beyond the fear for the lives of our loved ones and beyond the trepidation for the country itself, I remember and still feel that utter helplessness of being alone. America helped with resupplying Israel, but this struggle for the very survival of the 25-year-old country was waged alone. That feeling of aloneness in the midst of a monumental war of survival never left me. I think it's one of the reasons why I was deeply moved by Mati's book about Leonard Cohen. Today, when so many performing artists, including Jewish artists, succumb to the pressure of Israel's opponents to avoid performing in Israel, when rock stars and other entertainers are so comfortably numb about virtue, preferring virtue signaling over honor, honesty, and integrity, It is so heartwarming to remember that Leonard Cohen traveled to Israel in the middle of its most terrible war. He went to the front lines. He crossed the Suez Canal with the vanguard of Israeli troops. As Mati described, he received some kind of message deep within his Jewish soul that he needed to be there. He didn't even know what he would do when he arrived. He thought he would volunteer on a kibbutz until Israeli performers persuaded him to come down to the Sinai Desert with them. He gave up to eight concerts a day for Israeli troops. He was unassuming, no microphone, no airs or graces. He ate rations with the soldiers and slept in a sleeping bag. And it was this experience that turned his life around. He was previously in a personal crisis. His faith in art was restored. He was able to sing again. He experienced a kind of rebirth in the midst of all this death and destruction of the Yom Kippur War. Reuniting with our people, especially in times of national crisis is the most powerful antidote to emotional drift and personal despair. There is something so powerful, so potent about Jewish existence, our collective energy and will to survive and to prosper, that it can bring us out of personal loneliness, aimlessness, depression, or drift. Of course, the Jewish people is not perfect, nor is the Jewish state, but it is us. And if we allow ourselves for a brief moment to step back from our relentless self-criticism, we will perceive that despite our flaws, we are a strong and special people, constantly seeking self-improvement and collective repair. As Leonard Cohen wrote in one of his most eloquent songs, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Until next time, this is In These Times.